Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is now 12.59 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time on the same day that I just cut episode 786. This is now episode 787, a palindrome of Bitcoin. And I got Rev Hoddle. We're going to be talking for, oh, I don't know, man, like a good hour and 10 minutes uh, about permaculture and what it is and sort of how he's handled it and how he came into it and doing all doing all the good stuff, right, that permaculturists do and a little bit about his property. And we're certainly at the very end, he's going to tell you a little bit more about the permaculture class that he's going to be teaching out there close to Baroda, Michigan. Again, he's got tickets on sale for that. It's going to be September the 17th. Tickets are 250,000 Satoshis, which are going to cost you less than they would have a couple of days ago. <coughs> it's going to be a good time. It's going to be a good time. Uh, so make sure that if you're interested in what permaculture is, how it works, what it does, and you want a little bit more than what we're able to give you during this interview today, then please, please, please consider if you're close with you, if you're a driving range of Baroda, Michigan, then you there, there's no reason not. It's only two hours away from Chicago. I can do a two hour drive standing on my head. All right. I mean, I literally I drove from southwest Colorado all the way to eastern Washington in one shot. I don't want to hear anybody complaining about the fact that it was too far, it's too far. No, it's not. I mean, Chicago, coming out of Chicago, driving two hours out into the country, man, eh, there's got to be a lot of Chicago guys out there, right? Right? Anyway, he's going to be doing this September the 16th and September the 17th. You're going to pay for the September the 17th uh, uh, session because that's where the class is. But on the 16th at 7 p.m., the night before, well, yeah, the night before the 17th, he's going to be doing a Bitcoin meetup. And that one is just, a, it's a free-for-all, but you do definitely have to bring your own beer. Without any further ado, Rev Hoddle. My guest today, Rev Hoddle, you're going to talk to us about permaculture. You're going to talk to us about the class that you got going on at your place up there in, what's Michigan? Yeah, yeah, Southwest Michigan. Okay, <clears throat> and I, we're going to, I also want to get several points i want to do bitcoin i want to do Noster, lightning you know how you see markets and how you see like you know does all this stuff play together with permaculture regenerative agriculture i want i i am all about edge effect where where two dissimilar things rub up against each other and all of a sudden you find more life at that spot than any place else in the other two systems i love that so if you if you have ideas and thoughts about Bitcoin and permaculture or markets and all this, this, all this stuff that we find ourselves in, I want to hear all about it. But the first thing that I want to hear about 
is your past, your history, how you came to be Rev Hoddle, perma, how you get into permaculture, how you found Bitcoin. So just let's let's start there, and then we'll work into all the other questions that I've got for you. Great. Well, yeah, I, I am Rev Hoddle. Um, I started my journey towards homesteading and practicing permaculture and all the things that I'm doing today. Back in 2006, I saw a film called The Garbage Warrior, which was a, a documentary about a guy who was building fully self-sustainable houses called Earthships. And I was fascinated by this uh, by this housing design. And so I, at the time, uh, in about 2010, I was working in the film industry in Chicago um, on documentary style and reality style TV. And it really wasn't uh, lining up with my ethics so well. So I quit my job at doing that. And then I jumped into um, an internship or an apprenticeship actually down there in New Mexico to learn how to build these self-sustaining houses called Earthships. Well, while I was there, I heard this term permaculture for the first time. And um, I didn't really think too much of it. At, at, I just finished up my apprenticeship and moved on to LA where I took my shot at the film industry again. And while I was in LA, I wanted to be the first person to build one of these Earthship homes in, the, in LA County. Um, and I was talking with some architects and uh, trying to figure out how I could weasel my way through all of the the regulatory uh, hoops and red tape in order to get one of these houses uh, approved to get a building permit. And after some months of research and, and trying, I realized that it was just financially too expensive. And uh, so I didn't end up, I well, that, that led me to want to look for property elsewhere. But while I was in LA, I started practicing permaculture. And this was, I mean, 2011 or uh, between 2011 and 2014, um, when you could go on YouTube and literally watch every single video uh, that there was on permaculture out there. I mean, there was not hardly anything. I mean, much like how at the early days of Bitcoin, you couldn't really find any information about Bitcoin on the internet. You kind of had to go into these super niche websites and forums and such. Well, so in LA, I was, I was doing stuff like I had a worm bin, um, that I was splitting and my roommates all thought I was insane because I had, you know, six uh, Rubbermaid totes on the back patio uh, filled with worms and cardboard. I was doing a hydroponic bottle garden in the window where I was growing stuff like peppers and uh, cherry tomatoes. I, I actually even got a cucumber to go and vine up across the, the top of the window uh, so along the curtain rod. And so I was playing around with this permaculture stuff uh, in L.A., but ultimately, it wasn't the, my the place for me because I couldn't build this house, this Earthship house. I needed a place with uh, more relaxed building codes, and so that's what led me out here to Southwest Michigan. Uh, now I've got a 20-acre um, homestead that I intend to eventually build one of these Earthship houses on. Um, but in the meantime, I've been planting food forests. I've got an integrated rabbit colony cannabis garden. We raise, uh, a, this year we've got about 40 sheep on the 10 acres of pasture that we have, which is integrated in with fruit trees, uh, pasture style hazelnuts and fruit trees. Um, I've built a rocket mass heater, which we use to heat the house with in the winter time. And so I've really taken a lot of these, uh, these big uh, hot ticket items of permaculture and I've put them into practice here over the years. Uh, I've been at this for about eight years now. Um, I can go into the story about how I came upon the name of Rev Hoddle, if, if uh, that's just a brief aside. Yeah. So while I was in LA, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was about to say, please do. I kind of want to, I'm interested. I want to hear how this uh, came about. 
so when I was in LA, um, there was these guys that they called themselves Reverend Dak and Reverend Mook or Rev Dak and Rev Mook. And they had this, uh, I wouldn't say it's a pirate radio show, but it was just kind of like a, their own little radio show. Um, I don't know on what's how it was on the, I was always listening to it streaming from a website, but it was broadcast. And, and so by listening to the show, that's how you got clued into kind of more of the underground, uh, punk rock culture that was going on in LA. Some of, some of these, um, these bike rides, these, uh, midnight bike rides, um, and, and house shows, stuff like that. You could get clued into it by listening to this radio show. Uh-huh. So it was, it's kind of like my homage to those guys, um, Rev Dak and Rev Mook. Um, I, I was like, well, I'm going to be Rev Hodel and I'm going to try and clue people into some of the, the stuff that I'm seeing through the Bitcoin lens. Ah, about what year was that? Is that like late eighties? No, God, no. That was in like 2012. Wow. So the punk was, was the, is the punk scene still like, like a thing in LA? I thought that kind of, kind of died out a little bit. Well, so what we were doing right before I left is we were doing, we'd go to underpasses um, and we'd, we'd fire, we do just these like pop-up punk shows where I lived in a neighborhood called Frogtown. um, And so it was right along the LA river. Uh, and now I think Frogtown's a pretty cool hip area, but back then it was it was a little bit more dicey. Uh-huh. And um, so we just pop up a generator and and show up with our amps and stuff and and throw a show right underneath the the highway overpass, right next to the L.A. River. And so that was kind of the manifestation of what like house show like that was our version of doing the house shows and stuff. The place that I lived at at the time it was like the practice um, space for like five or six other bands in the neighborhood. So there was always somebody playing music there at any time of day. I mean, you had to get used to sleeping when people were out there jamming and doing all kinds of nonsense. So, right. <laughs> uh, so yeah, there was still, I mean, it's, it's a lot different than what I would imagine the the punk scene was like in the eighties or anything like that, but it was its own version of this more of like an underground music culture, not, these bands were not interested in playing at venues and, and getting in that scene. They just wanted to put their music out there in like a, a wild and an, more anarchic type space. So, yeah. Uh, are, do you still play at all? I just jam. I never really played in a band. I would just kind of show up and pull a guitar out or pick up a bass guitar or something and, and babble something in the microphone. So yeah, I, I, I used to actually throw something called the harvest jam here annually up until COVID and that sort of put the end to that for a while. I'm hoping to revive it, but I would just set up a, a makeshift stage and then get a drum set and a PA system and all this stuff going. Um, and then everyone at the party was basically encouraged to just go up and pick up an instrument and just create some weird ass music with whoever else you're, you're next to. Um, and so it was a lot of terrible stuff that would happen from that. But right. every once in a while the people would connect and they'd click in and you'd have like these magical one time, you'll never hear that song again, you know, cause it was just made up right there, jammed out. Um, so that's kind of what I'm interested in as far as, uh, making music goes is just the, the jam format, just playing instruments all with a group of people you never played before and seeing what happens. Yeah. There's a, a certain amount of magic that, that can occur. Uh, I used to do that, used to do that as well. So, so like chilling out in LA, you decide that that there's just not going to be an earthship in your future, given the covenants and restrictions that, you know, they have. Plus, you know, there's there's that whole uh, um, 
a story that Jack Spirico talks about when he wanted to get financing on a geodesic dome house, which was, he said, was beautiful. And not a bank would touch it. It's structurally more sound than any other house that you can build. I, I, I probably wouldn't live in one, but from a structure standpoint, you don't find anything that is, well, that structurally built. It, it was a nice house. It had nice interior. It had like a nice kitchen. And he could not find a bank that would allow him to take finance. That he, wouldn't, he could not get financing to buy this house. And that was his first choice when he was moving to Dallas. So you're, you're in good company with other people that, you know, if it, doesn't look like a, if it doesn't look like it was built with sticks or concrete or bricks, it's like it doesn't exist to the legacy financial world. And it's really sad because I know the potential of earth ships, you know, I mean, it's amazing. So, I'm, I, so y- you find that out, you figure that out and you're like, you know what? I'm gone. So y- how did you, f- how did you f- go to, to where you're at now? I mean, did you just throw darts at a map? Did you have family there? Or... Yeah, I had family here is the long story short. Um, this area, the more I, this area of Michigan that I live in is called the Fruit Belt. It's actually got a, a microclimate due to the way that the jet stream blows over Lake Michigan. Uh-huh. Um, and so we actually get a climate zone further south, uh, which allows us to grow a wider variety of perennial stuff. So there's like all sorts of apple orchards and, vine- and vineyards. And so when I was looking for property, I mean, I had this place in mind just because I had been familiar with it. Um, we actually, I used, I grew up outside of Chicago in the suburbs and my family and I used to come here to this area that I live in now vacationing. And so that was kind of how I was aware of it in the first place. Um, but as I started to sort of develop my plan for how I was going to implement these ideas of permaculture and build this, uh, earthship house and so on and so forth, I realized that I needed some mechanism to like bootstrap. And this was kind of before the internet was as, or the internet speeds and every, the infrastructure was there to work remotely. Um, it was a lot more difficult to be a video editor and work remotely at that time back in like 2013, 2014. And so this was actually right when Airbnb was starting to become sort of a, uh, that was more of an underground thing even back then too. I'd gone on some trips um, and stayed at weird places through Airbnb, like a school bus in Louisiana or some uh, weird like chicken shack type thing in uh-huh. the Florida Keys and so on and so forth. And so I, I the, actually, the, the lady in the school bus in Louisiana was the person who t- tipped me off to this idea. She's like, if you want to get started doing something, find an area with good tourism flows and then modify the house to, to do an Airbnb and have that be the, the bootstrapping mechanism. And so that that's what I ultimately was looking for was a house that, I could split into two different units um, and then immediately start cash flowing back on the property. Homesteading is uh, when I say homesteading, what I mean is like monetizing your property, you know, right. You want to find a revenue stream right away that you can, you can yield from your own land. And so for me, it was, was switch swapping this house out to be an Airbnb right away. And I've, I've got the beach that's uh, t- less than 15 minutes away. Uh, there are several beaches, nice sandy beaches you can watch watch the sunset over the water there's uh vineyards just or or wineries just miles from my house you could practically walk there and so i was i found this property that was in kind of this prime location to catch those tourism flows and that's how i got started ultimately was was with this airbnb to the point now where i built this 20-foot yurt i'm renting that to guests 
and actually uh, also renting that to Bitcoiners. And uh, I'm currently finishing up a 20 foot tiny house. I've actually been building that thing for like six years. But as I got more irons in the fire, I found that the only time I had to really do these construction projects was the three months in the winter time when it's like the most brutal time to be outside working. So, yeah, yeah, I would, I would imagine. So, so 20, so 20 acres, right? That's a fair, that's a fair piece of land. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't want to get you to, to where you have to say how much it set you back, but at the time that you bought it, was was the uh, property values as crazy as they are as they were became post COVID, or was it more like affordable? Well, that I I bought at the right time. I, I could say that um, interest rates were very good. Um, well, and actually, the story too. I actually couldn't to Jack Spierko's kind of point about not being able to get financing. I actually couldn't qualify for financing for the house. And so I had to kind of backdoor my way into the property by like pitching my, uh, my vision to the owners. Um, they had this property listed on Craigslist, uh, for several years. And I'd looked at it a couple times before I actually was able to purchase it. And the, the way I was able to purchase it is that I, I made them an offer, um, of owner. I had to basically get them to owner finance it for the first year while I renovated the house to build up the equity that I needed in order to then refinance into a traditional loan. Um, and so the, the stars had to kind of align in order for me to really get my hands on this place. Um, but thankfully they did. And I've been taking advantage of that ever since. Um, but no, I mean the, the, the amount of equity that's built up through these crazy valuations is, is kind of frightening sometimes when you think about it. So you've got this, so you got this property. The first thing that you wanted to do is start at cash flowing so that the property is actually basically, you know, paying for itself. How have you gotten it there or are you still working on getting it there? Or like, is it covering uh, bank costs and, or uh, the not bank costs, but the costs that are associated with the, any property taxes or any of the, the situations that you worked out with the previous owners, is, is it working or are you still having to work on that? So yeah, the, the house I was able to refinance and pay off the, the original owners. So I have no, I have this house, no liens or anything. I just yes. have it with a loan at the bank. And um, yeah, we we're at 100% homestead, homestead income actually for the last two years now um, by setting up this yurt that that was kind of what tipped the scales for my wife to be able to quit her in-town job. Granted, we're making less now than we were before with just the one rental and her job in town, uh-huh. but we're making it work uh, to the point where we're still able to, you know, we're able to stack Bitcoin and, and save a little bit. Um, and so, yeah, it's, we're, we're just now at the point where we have so much going on. Um, we kind of need to hire an employee or have somebody, I need some help. Uh-huh. but I don't necessarily make enough to afford that person. So I have to kind of just tough it out for maybe one or two more seasons just on my own um, until I can finally breach that revenue, you know, get enough revenue to afford this employee, which will then hopefully unlock even more uh, money. So we're close. We're very close to really uh, living the dream here. How long, so how long has this been, how many years has this been total to get you to where you're at now? We're on the eighth season. Okay. So it's been eight years, um, not just getting started anymore by any means, but I feel like we're still a long ways away from our big picture stuff. I mean, I've got chestnut trees planted 
that won't be producing for another decade or so. And uh, I've, we're just starting to get fruit on the fruit trees. So it, it's, it is the low time preference uh, perspective here where every year we're just planting a little bit more and a little bit more uh, produce comes. And that allows us to step a little bit further away from Airbnb and lean a little bit more into the homesteading stuff. Yeah. So <clears throat> again, we're, so we're talking about 20 acres and you're, you're designing this property sort of like, you know, you got a big picture plan and you're putting different pl- things in places. And this is one of the things that, that I think that when, when people, they just get they get into permaculture, they read, like they'll read a couple of books, they'll look at a couple of videos. And they're like, have no conception of how long it, takes to get to the you know to the middle stages and especially to the final stages and i think that you know having somebody who's been through that as long as you've been going through that is really essential for people to understand that this it you just don't buy a piece of property and all of a sudden do permaculture and then everything's fine what i really understand about this is that a it takes a long time it can be quite painful and you really got to have your heart in that. And if none of, if those three things aren't in alignment or you don't have one of those three things that is probably going to fail, is that, is that your estimation too? Or what, what's, what would be a piece of advice for some that you'd give for somebody who's like, oh, I've got a permaculture five acres. Well, the, I think the biggest thing is that you have to start with the end in mind, but you have to realize that there's still no way to, make a tree if you just planted a, a freshly grafted tree there's no way to make it fruit any faster you just have to literally wait the five to seven years before it establishes itself and and starts fruiting and i mean it was a little overwhelming at first out here this was a corn and soybean field the pastures were and it wasn't particularly well um attended to either i mean i think that the previous owners they got so old that they just couldn't maintain the property anymore and so they were just renting it out to some neighbors and the neighbors weren't necessarily farming it like it was their own property you know they were just kind of extracting as much as they could and so there was definitely evidence of that the soil was basically just this hard crust of uh, clay and sand with that could only grow um, weeds essentially ragweed and uh, curly dock and just a bunch of garbage uh-huh. and um so it's, I started off, I didn't even have any animals to start working that. So I had to mow. And so it was just every year I, I took one step closer to the ultimate vision. Um, and so I guess it, I, I would, I actually would have started over again with, if I were to start over again, I wouldn't do 20 acres, uh-huh. um, doing 20 acres kind of in order for me to, uh, maximize the potential of this property that puts me at a level of production that goes beyond just feeding my immediate family. Right. Um, and that was really all I wanted was I came to this earthship idea and homesteading and all that with kind of this prepper mindset that I just wanted to like be an Island. If I had to be, you know, uh, if shit hit the fan, I would have my, my things in order. And now I'm sort of being pushed into this, uh, level of production. That's beyond that point being is that, with five, five acres is a lot more manageable. Um, there's a principle in permaculture work from patterns to details. And a lot of times people start with the pattern of the landscape, the pattern of the water flows, things like that. 
And it's a lot easier to wrap your mind around those patterns to get your initial design implementation on five acres uh, and really get to know that five acres than it is on 20. I mean, 10 is probably the sweet spot, actually. But yeah. um, the, the, it's all the things that you hear. Is, it's true. You want to just don't do shit for the find something else to do rather than go and planting fruit trees in the first year or two. Uh, as crazy as it sounds, one, you need to prep the, likely wherever you're at. The soil is not good. And yeah. so putting a fruit tree in soil that isn't ready for it um, is just going to make your life miserable trying to keep that damn thing alive. And so spend the time observing the property, seeing uh, how it interacts and how you interact with it, how, how the weather and everything interacts with it, and build, and start putting shit down to build soil. I mean, that was I was fortunate enough to get all these wood chip flows early mm-hmm. on. Um, it just so happened that the power company was doing their like once every 10 years uh, cleanup of all the, the trees and the power lines right on my road. Uh, and so I was just like, give me all those damn wood chips. And <laughs> ah. I, I put them everywhere. Yeah. Um, and so that was sort of the foundation for what, what is now the food forest and the food forest. I used to have to water it regularly. Now I don't ever water. I hardly ever water anything on the, on the homestead actually, besides my vegetable garden, um, which actually I, now that it's established, I don't water that anymore either. Yeah. Uh, point being is that you got to start building soil and, and don't don't worry about planting stuff. Just observe what you have. That was another thing that a big mistake that I made was not being able to see or realize the value that was already here and wanting to bring in my own concepts of what I wanted the property to be rather than sort of observing the assets that already existed. The fact that I had uh, mature trees that, that I could harvest, that there was all of these sugar maple trees that I could uh, monetize. Um, all these kinds of assets I didn't realize until I spent more time interacting with the property. Um, so that that's my spiel on that. Okay. Rev, at this point, you, you mentioned patterns. You mentioned building soil. I think at this point, it'd be a real good idea for us to get, what is it that you think permaculture is? is because there's so many people that do this. There's a lot of people that have different, you know, like they approach it in a different way. Is there, what, what would you tell people if somebody comes up to you and says, Rev, I don't know what the hell a permaculture is from a hole in the ground. What, where do you start trying to get them to understand what the term permaculture actually means? Well, I, I, my high level overview of what permaculture is, it's a design framework or a, a framework of three ethics, the earth care, people care, redistribution of surplus back to the system, and then the 12 principles. And by utilizing those, the, the goal is when, those, when you apply those to anything, whether that's farming, whether that's your business, whether that's the concept of capital, whether that's Bitcoin, the goal when you're trying to utilize these ethics and principles is to create resilience in the culture. Um, permaculture, in my opinion, does not stand for permanent agriculture, but truly permanent culture. And when I say permanent culture, I don't mean ossified culture, a culture that's unchanging, but a culture that's resilient enough to withstand any um, ca- catastrophic catastrophic event or um, hardship to the point where it continues to build and grow, um, similar to like the concept of regenerative agriculture, where every season, instead of having less and needing more inputs you need less inputs and you have more uh living capital 
already there. Um, the same is true. That's what we're trying to create when we practice permaculture. At least that's what I'm trying to create is trying to create a culture that is so resilient that anything can happen and we will still build on top of it and continue to grow and move forward. I mean, we've seen examples throughout history. Um, well, the Roman Empire fell, you know, the even pre prehistoric. We don't know what happened to Egypt or any of these people that built the megalithic structures. Um, why whatever they were doing, their culture wasn't strong enough to withstand whatever happened to cause that to to fall and become erased from the, the history books. I think with permaculture, we can create the civilization that is with resistant to anything. Yeah. So we're, so what we're, this is like, it's kind of hard for me to, when I wrap my head around it, I always want to start with where we think permaculture came from. And that's Bill Mollison and David Holmgren. Right, the guys that actually built and, and wrote and did all the work for the permaculture, what what became the permaculture designer's manual, which is like the Bible or the textbook. But it cannot be the case that that these techniques weren't actually put in place before Bill Mollison was, you know, a baby in diapers. Do you agree with that statement, or are you more along the lines of the people that say, no, permaculture didn't exist before Bill Mollison and David Holmgren wrote the Permaculture Designer's Manual? I think that they, yes, all the principles, because they are principles, they've always existed. It's just a way, I think that what they've done is they've kind of refined this concept of integrating with nature, um, because ultimately that's how you build resilience is to like find your place and how you fit in with the broader ecosystem or complex systems in general. Um, and so, yes, I think permaculture has always existed, but now we have a way to define it. And sometimes we need to re by having these words written down and these ethics and principles that I can come and reference, I have some sort of framework now to, to drive my thinking process. Um, if it was just intuitive, it would be harder for me to propagate that information and teach somebody else how to carry on. It, and people who had been farming um, sort of more traditionally throughout time, they've gone through these ebbs and flows of being successful, but then also uh, building into cultural practices that have ultimately destroyed their land through over farming or over grazing. And so maybe if they had something more concrete, I mean, the Bible or whatever, you know, where there's these, these rules to live your life by, um, there, that those mistakes could have been avoided. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, <clears throat> there's a lot of pollen in the air around where I'm, where I'm at right now. It's been messing with me for weeks now. Um, <clears throat> we talked about principles and like the, like the three ethics, you got earth care and then there's people care. And then there's return the surplus. And, you know, from, from my standpoint, when, when I look at the earth care, like actually when I look at the three, the three ethics as laid down, it's reminds me a lot of, did you ever read, uh, Isaac Asimov's I robot? No. Okay. There's three laws of robotics and they're really, it's an interesting set of laws and they remind me or 
the permaculture laws remind me or ethics remind me of it. And it's like the, like, for instance, the first law of robotics is that you cannot do any harm to a human being. And the second law is you cannot do any harm to yourself. And the third law is you have to do what, whatever a human tells you to do, unless it conflicts with the first two laws. And that ends up throwing out some really interesting uh, story structures, which is what Isaac Asimov was was uh, exploring when he wrote several short short stories that became iRobot. But when I look at like Earth care comes before people care, and a lot of people will go, "Well, don't you want to take care of the people first? And it seems to me that Earth care does come before people care because as you take care of the Earth, you're kind of guaranteeing that you're going to have the ability to take care of people. Am I missing that? somehow or or am i kind of close to the way that you're thinking about it or you think it's something completely different when it comes to the ethics well i actually never considered that there was significance to the order in which the ethics are stated um but yeah absolutely i mean the earth is going to be well it's going to be i think it's hard for us to destroy the earth but if there was people on mars or whatever and they ended up causing some something to happen to where now Mars is uninhabitable. And maybe there was people on Venus, and the same thing was true. It was the demise of their choices. Um, yes, then the, the care of the planet should come first. Um, because without the planet, then we have nowhere else to go, clearly. If you look at other planets in the solar system, there's a lot of work to be done to, to move over there. Um, the the first two ethics are fairly self-explanatory, but the third ethic is where people start to get a little bit, there's some debate about what the third ethic actually means. And so the third ethic is sometimes referred to as fair share, return the surplus back to the system. Um, and sort of what I've been starting to call the third ethic is the practice of non-extraction. Um, so what I'm trying to do by returning the surplus back to the system is ultimately not squeeze my system so hard that I'm extracting from them. I'm taking siphoning energy away. I want to take it just enough to where I leave the energy in the system to continue to grow and build upon itself. And so by practicing this form of non-extraction, um, or if I have squeezed it too hard, I want to try and give back to that system so that it continues to grow. And so that's where my perspective comes in on the third ethic is that it's not necessarily uh, an ethical dilemma of if I have extra stuff, I should be sharing that with others, my peers or my neighborhood. Um, it's more about ethically, how do I integrate my yields from the system back in if I've taken too much? Once I've, I've you know, self-regulated and applied feedback, the, one of the principles, am I able to find a way to make sure that there is still energy in the system to continue to build upon itself? Yeah. And that's what sort of where I was thinking about with the, uh, the Asimov rules of robotics is that they all, all the rules kind of depend on each other. And it looks like in a way that Mollison and, and Holmgren kind of did the same thing. Cause you got, you take care of the earth first, that allows you to take care of the people and the people upon the land recognize the surplus and the surplus goes back to the land. And then it becomes kind of a loop. And, and that's where I start wondering about, is there, 
is there really that much of a difference between regenerative agriculture and permaculture outside of the fact that permaculture holds a bunch of different techniques and design principles? It looks to me like regenerative agriculture is sort of just part of it. And and people make a distinction between regen ag and permaculture. And I'm getting to the point where I don't make these distinctions anymore. I just see it all as part of the same thing. Um, is there something about what I just said that is just patently wrong? Or do you see it that way? Or where do you see regen ag fitting with permaculture? So in my opinion, permaculture is a larger umbrella in which regenerative agriculture fits into and yeah. and actually regenerative agriculture might even be considered a technique when you take the permaculture ethics and, and and principles you might end up with something that looks like regenerative agriculture and so the 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 techniques in which you practice in order to accomplish regenerative agriculture are simply techniques that are derived from the ethics and the principles of permaculture and so in my opinion, yes, permaculture is sort of this big umbrella that and, and people often think that permaculture exclusively applies to something like gardening or farming. But really, the the the, the intersection of the ethics and principles uh, can be applied to any concept. And I like to I, I the eight forms of capital concept is the, the one that I like to reference the most in regards to this. Um, I, I, I really need to remember this guy's name who was first who first kind of published this idea as far as I remember it. When I took my PDC, it was him who they referenced. Uh, his, his, his website's Appleseed Permaculture, I believe. Um, but basically, this guy took the, the, the permaculture ethics and principles and applied those to the, the concept of capital. And, and from that, was able to derive that there are these eight forms of capital. And actually, through my study on it, I've, I suggest that maybe there's nine or even more forms of capital. Um, and so this is this is the idea, though, is that you can take these ethics and principles and you can apply it to concepts. And I like to think about this as, as well when, with Bitcoin is um, you can take the ethics and principles and apply it to the system and the network of Bitcoin. And you can come up with some pretty interesting observations there as well. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I was just looking over there at, at, at Appleseed.design. And I'm trying to find the guy's name, but yeah, uh, the eight, yeah, the eight forms of capital is is interesting because it starts to lead us into this issue where when people look at permaculture, what they normally see is you know pastures, trees, vegetable gardens, you know, like uh, different forms of well living things upon the land. And yet the more I've dug into permaculture, it expands into economics and sociology and all these things that you don't see. And one of the things that I get kind of, I don't know, I, I, I get kind of pushback when I, when I talk to people about permaculture and they just think it's agriculture. And I'm like, no, it's not it's a complete design science that takes into consideration things like forms of capital and then at that point i kind of lose them because they they're not able to connect the land the things that grow upon it which are the things that feed humans because all food comes from the land you know honestly even the idiots that want to build steel tanks that produce fake meat 
the precursors of all that meat still come from the land. I don't even want to get into that, but, but that it's like, there's this disconnect that people can't see. They just think of it as a woo woo type of farming. And that's not what it is at all. I, how, when you started approaching permaculture and you started learning more and more about it, did you, did you hit some place where you go, Oh shit, this isn't what I thought it was at all. Yeah. And I think that, it's kind of like, um, well, in permaculture, there's this often there's this concept of succession that's referenced. And so a system, as it moves through this process of succession, it changes in use case and uh, interaction with the, the whole um, on its journey through uh, becoming established then becoming mature. Then it will often decline and the cycle will repeat. And so I think like our interaction in our, well, my, I'll speak for myself, my interaction and my understanding of permaculture has sort of gone through the same steps where it started off as me thinking that this is the way to produce high quality food in an ethical manner that is good for the planet, right? And, and that, that makes things better. But as I've gone through the process of, ex, of exploring how to implement that, it's become so much more. Um, and so I, it's kind of just, I, I think Bitcoin is similar too, where at first you just think that Bitcoin is number go up technology, right? And you're going to, you're going to get some Bitcoin. And if you, if you get it at the right time, you're going to make out pretty good. Um, and then as you get the Bitcoin, then it starts to lead you into discovering more of its potential and, and more of what it actually really is doing. And, I'm still on, I mean, I think everybody is still on this process of discovering deeper levels of what Bitcoin really is. Um, and the same, I think, is true for permaculture. Um, and so, yes, it's, there's never, I guess you constantly have these eye-opening moments over and over again. Uh, one thing that I referenced earlier was like, w when you first get the property, you don't, you, if you don't have the eyes to see, you don't know what you have. And so I keep over and over again, recognizing these special, unique things about this 20-acre homestead that I have that I never realized before as I'm learning more and more about how I fit into this system and how the system is all working together. And I was just thinking about, I was just thinking about like how you, you well, you, you said it's how, how thinking about permaculture sort of resembles how we think about Bitcoin and we start realizing is the longer that we're in Bitcoin, the more and more it's not just money. It's not just number go up technology that there's something more. And I had put it this way in like a couple of shows like uh, earlier this or in a show earlier this week. Whereas if I hold Bitcoin and I do, I don't just have Bitcoin. What that Bitcoin actually is, is access to the most secure network on the face of the planet that the planet has ever seen. Now, if I if I look at that from a from permaculture terms, I'm right now I'm reading. Um, not it's not Char I can't remember the guy's name. It's not Gay Brown. It's not Charles Massey. Um, Stika, uh, something Stika. He's he talks about pasture management. And this second book of his is basically minerals. And what are they? How are they in the soil? You know, like what, how, how do you balance them? 
How do you make them available? And he's a regen ag guy too. Um, so when I say that I have Bitcoin and I, with that Bitcoin, I can either allow myself to access the network and we have no idea the potential of this network. And I think that that's what I'm getting at is that we think it is this thing, but I have a sneaky suspicion that it's a hundred, a thousand times more, but my Bitcoin I know for sure is the one and only thing that allows me to directly access that network in permaculture and, or in, in, or even in just regen ag, like a subset. We can say that the stick guy, the way that he manages his properties, using plants, using cover crops, what he's continuously trying to do is put more life in the soil. And that soil allows those minerals to start cycling again become less bound up with the things that it's bound up with, making it more available to the plants that are on it. So I say that these principles, these ethics, these techniques are sort of like holding Bitcoin. And those techniques and principles and ethics allow you to access the minerals that are in the soil over a period of time. We find out that by using these techniques, that we're unlocking more and more of the soil's potential, and we have yet to plumb the depths of that soil's potential. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, holding Bitcoin is just one way of participating in the network too. And so, and this is where I think like the, the permaculture ethics and principles can apply to Bitcoin, because not only can you just simply hold Bitcoin, uh, you can run a node, you can mine, um, and then you can also make decisions about what, how you utilize, where, where, where the utility of your Bitcoin lies, whether you want to use layer twos like Lightning, whether you want to maintain, on cha- uh, maintain privacy on chain with, through something like coin joining. And so there's all these different ways of utilizing and participating and interacting with the network. Um, and so I think over time, this idea of uh, transaction fees um, and, and how we well, and how what we know Bitcoin to do, what what its purpose is for us, will change and evolve and grow. Uh, I like to uh, relate it to like something like when when a desert. So at first, the desert wasn't always there, right? At some right. point, it w- had been desertified, and the same thing is true for a rainforest. The rainforest wasn't always there, and at some point, it grew in. And so, what are the steps necessary in order for that rainforest to establish itself to start? Um, maturing and then at a certain point it hits this critical mass where the the rainforest instead of being subject to the climate it actually is an influence on the climate it starts to create its own climate and its own weather Um, i think the maturity and the the process of succession that bitcoin is on is similar and and i think brandon quidham has has he relates it well with his uh article the bitcoin is a pioneer species or something like that I think yeah. that's what it's called, um, where, you know, and, and that has more to do with mining and, and, and sort of injecting uh, Bitcoin mining into uh, areas where energy is uh, available, but underutilized. And then by accessing that energy, it brings more more commerce and people. But Bitcoin, the network itself is literally on this process of growing from a seedling tree into or or maybe a forest transitioning from savanna or pasture into something that will ultimately be a rainforest at which point it then creates its own climate and its own weather um and so there's no way to make that happen 
as, as much as we want hyper Bitcoinization to happen, and we think that there's just going to be some some uh, gradually then suddenly event. Um, I think that it's because of the nature of the way that the network is built. Uh, through, it, it's the world's first, in my opinion, natural digital system, uh -huh. where it uh, by the nature of having all of these nodes interacting, our interaction through consensus, it's and it's interfaced through proof of, proof of work. Bitcoin is literally tied into the net, the net, the laws of nature that reside here on the planet. And it, it is subject to those laws to the same degree that a tree growing or uh, ecosystem developing is. And so we have to just follow along and, and, and recognize, observe and interact as these as Bitcoin succeeds from one use case to another, uh, from one um, at, yeah, from one use case to another, it, it's going on a process of succession from becoming uh, into becoming a rainforest. Is my point? Yeah, I I think about along those lines quite a bit. You know, I, I'm a big <clears throat> I don't know I, I'm terribly interested in mycology um, and have been for quite a while. But you know, somebody's like going, "Oh, I guess you go out and hunt for mushrooms," or you know, all the time. And I'm like, "No." I really don't. It's like, well, you know, don't you want to go pick, you know, chanterelles? And I'm like, yeah, if I see them, but that's not, I don't care about that at all. You know, like all the mycelial, you know, all the mycelial networks that I care about are the ones that connect trees to each other and bushes to each other and grasses and trees and bushes all to each other. Cause these, this network that exists underground, that's been here for, millions of years is one of the most interesting things I've ever seen. And the only thing that I've seen that looks anything like it is the Bitcoin network, because it's a network that, like you said, it connects living things, i.e. the humans that not only built the code for it, but the node runners and then the miners and we're all like these different species, but we're all interacting with the exact same framework, with the exact same network. And it's allowing it's allowing different assets to be deployed all at the same time without any collisions whatsoever within the actual network itself. And there's this there's this diagram that I see and I, I just I will stare at it all the time. It's a it's a di it's a top-down diagram that represents a 30 meter by 30 meter plot of ground in some forest somewhere. And they took a lot of soil samples around and there's like 60 dug fir trees and several different bushes. And they, they literally mapped them out as to where they are spatially in relation to each other. And then they took a bunch of soil samples and did a bunch of uh, DNA sequencing to find out. And they were specifically looking for mycelial networks what they discovered was that 65 of the 75 dug fir trees that were in this 30 meter by 30 meter plot were all connected by several different mycelial networks, but they were all, all these different networks were actually all overlapping together. And it, it looks like a mess, but when you start looking at it, you realize that this is the way that nature has always worked and that Bitcoin the, the especially the network behind it and the living items that are connected to it, like in the case of the mycelial network, the dug fir trees, in the case of Bitcoin, the actual network itself, it looks very 
It looks scarily similar. It's almost like there's no way that we can think of an idea that has not already been thought of before because somehow we're locked in by the rules of the universe. That's sort of where I come that's sort of where I come from. And it sounds kind of like you're thinking along the same lines too. Yes. I and well, I agree with that one hundred percent that at the network you can overlay it it's fractals up and down as a blow as above so below all of these phrases these different concepts they all ring true um you've seen pictures of the human uh eye iris or the retina or whatever it it looks like uh when you when you zoom into uh, the galaxies or whatever in space it, it's very similar right? yes and um and so yeah the, the, it's very it, it's almost like the whatever the creative force is, is is forcing through when we find something that's resonant, the um, the manifestation of that resonance, it looks similar at different scales over and over again because that's just the nature of the energy that's res that's passing through everything. Yeah. Um. It, oh, go ahead. No. Well. Uh, well. Okay. What I was going to say was that, um, getting. Kind of to try to bring it back down to where people, where I can get people to understand some of the, I don't know, get your hands dirty part about the notion of permaculture. We talk about principles versus techniques. And what I was kind of wanting to uh, see if you could do is take us through a couple of different standard techniques used in permaculture on your particular property. Sure. Well, so yeah, there's um, you know, there's the principle: catch and store energy, obtain a yield, observe and interact, um, self-regulate and apply feedback. All these things are principles, and and so what they they should do is they should inform your techniques. And so I've got some examples of things that I initially thought were techniques that were would work well, but through basically I failed and they didn't. And then I've got some examples of techniques that did work well because they fit into my more of my aptitude and my personal situation. Okay. So when I first got the property, the, the pastures, while they were being rented and farmed, the forest had started to encroach onto uh, the fields a little bit. And so I had removed, I basically cut down some, you know, three inch or less trees that were working their way in there. And so in my mind, I had been uh, following um, Paul Wheaton and his idea of these like Hugel culture mounds should be seven feet tall. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, so I was like, well, and, and that was when I was very much in the camp of this is the way and, and more so than here is a way. I was thinking like this is the best way to implement this usage of this, these trees. And so I cut down the trees. I piled them up. I took my tractor. I piled over dirt on top and I built myself a, a seven foot tall Hugel culture mound. And so I was implementing a technique that I thought was going to fast track me in order to like, I built this Hugel culture mound that was going to be now a perennial garden bed that was fertilized for the next 25 years. And it was going to be so fantastic. Well, I built it wrong. I piled up wood and then I just put dirt over top of it. And that's not necessarily the best way to build a Hugel culture, Hugel culture mound. And so it, all it did was just grow a bunch of weeds and that was me trying to implement a technique that I thought was going to fast track my uh, progression towards my permaculture, ultimate permaculture design vision of the property, which totally failed. On the other hand, 
there's also um, so there's a the the uh, uh, principle design from patterns to details. I've discussed this one before, and so the obvious, most obvious thing is to to take the pattern of the landscape and the water flows and implement swales and water catchment features in order to harvest that water and then use that water to then maybe grow something like fruit or nut trees. And so that was a tech. So a technique uh, to implement patterns to details would be digging swales. And so I did dig some swales. Now at the, that time, I didn't have the equipment to dig the, um, the swales that let's say Jeff Lawton would dig, which are, you know, a lot of times those are implemented, they're three feet deep and then three feet tall. And you're catching like every single drop of water that will ever in the most <laughs> catastrophic rain fall on the property. Well, I didn't right. have the equipment to do that. I didn't have an excavator with a, a uh, articulating bucket head or anything like that or the money to pay somebody to do it for me. So what I did is I borrowed my neighbor's two bottom plow and I just dug a furrow on contour with the hillside. And that turned out to be a technique that worked has been working excellently. Um, and, and that was because I, instead of taking someone's idea and trying to copy it directly as a technique that would fast track me, Instead, I reversed back to more of the permaculture principles and I, and I worked with more of what I had and I worked with the aptitudes and the, the skill set that I was already uh, comfortable with. And that turned out to be just fine. Though, even though those swales are only uh, maybe a foot deep at most, uh -huh. what they do is they, they still accomplish the goal of slow it, spread it, sink it when it comes to the water. I'm slowing the water down. I'm infiltrating it uh, horizontally across the slope and I'm catching any of the manure, any of the urine or any erosion that's happening as my sheep are grazing in between these rows of perennial fruit trees. And now I can plant apple trees that are two or three years old and never water them. And they establish themselves just fine in these swales. And those, those swales have been there and without any maintenance for several years. And so this yeah. is my point is that the, there's difference between you. If you, you should let the, the principles, the ethics and principles inform the techniques that you use rather than thinking that these techniques are the best thing to do um, in general, because everybody's aptitudes, circumstance, and uh, what, what tools they might have at their disposal or, or uh, materials should inform which techniques you use to accomplish the goals that the principles uh, inform you to do, catch and store energy, so on and so forth, obtain a yield. Yeah, so for those that <clears throat> that are listening that don't know what a swale is, it's a ditch on contour that catches water and keeps it there instead of letting it run off the land. But what even that that's such a, you know, a great uh definition. It doesn't really it doesn't really get into the parameters of what you need to do to figure out where the contour is. How did you do it? How did you find the contour so that you can make sure that you're following the, the the landform and that the ditch at one end is the exact same elevation as the ditch on the other end? So the water's not running in a direction. It's just basically coming up against this wall of dirt on the other side of the swale and just saying, I can't go anywhere except down. So I've done it a couple of ways. I've used the, the do-it-yourself A-frame level, um, which is you essentially build a, a giant a on level ground and you hang a uh, a plumb bob from the apex of that a frame structure and uh mark where level is on a cross member between the two uh i can't i don't know how to explain it yeah. on audio but uh an a frame level i built an a frame level and i and i 
mark contour lines that way for the first several swales. That's a little bit more tedious because you literally have to walk the whole 500 feet or 250 feet or what it, what it, whatever it is with this level and flip it back and forth and, and be putting, you know, dozens if not hundreds of flags down to mark right. where the contour is. I upgraded eventually I found at a garage sale, uh, I think it's called a transom level. Yeah. Um, it's like a, a, a tripod that you look, it's got a, 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 like a telescope thing that you look through. Um, and so you can find a level point with that in, in much more, uh, a, a much shorter period of time. Now, I, I think a lot of people recommend using, and at this point they might be cheap, is those laser levels. Yeah. Um, where you basically have a wand and you can you can put it once the wand hits the the plane that the the thing spending out the signal is at that'll that'll uh reveal the level point you can find your contour lines that way yeah there's that's a lot of ways to do it yeah and it's just that it's really important that the whole thing is on is on a contour so that the entire floor of that swale the ditch that's on contour is pretty much within the same level from end to end so that the water's not flowing through and that sticks the water and keeps it from flowing off your land. And I think that that's the most important part to know is that not as much how to build it as much as what it does is keeps the water on your land. And there's a whole book written about this by PA Yeomans for that was water for every farm that he was doing this with Except he was taking, he really wasn't doing swales, was he? He was using the yeoman's plow. Do do you use any of that technique from PA Yeomans where you're subsoiling? I've wanted to get um, just a single shank subsoiler to do something similar. I think I wouldn't, Yeomans was doing such large uh, scale that having this specifically designed plow was necessary to ever accomplish it. I've only got about 10 acres of pasture that I'd be subsoiling. Um, and I think I could do it with a single shank. Even if I just hit a couple acres a year, it'd be better than nothing. I have not been able to do that yet. Um, it's just, what, once again, working from patterns to details, it's like I, I had to start with just getting my swale. I wanted to get my swales dug, my plant, my trees planted, um, started grazing the sheep. So it's just something that, it's a, it's a technique that would probably be beneficial to me. Another thing that PA Yeomans uh, popularized was this idea of the key line. And uh, key lines are, are where, instead of making every single uh, swale that you have on contour, you find the sweet spot, which is the key line in the slope, kind of where the slope, it, it hits its apex between being gentle and steep. Um, and you find that you you find the contour line of that particular spot on the hillside, and then you just extrapolate that evenly um, up and down. So that way you end up with more consistent straight-ish rows. My swales, some of them, sometimes I'll have thirty feet between them, and sometimes it'll squeeze down to like fifteen, yeah. um, which isn't necessarily a great technique for if you plan on using, let's say, you have a mechanical harvesting equipment for whatever it is you might be growing, you might be more interested in applying the key line structure rather than digging truly on contour swales. And granted, the other thing I wanted to mention is that my swales aren't perfect. Uh, I thought that I had the, the contour lines marked out, but 
as it turns out, there's there's uh, spots where water pools up more than others. There's spots where it overflows first, and you know. Th but the point is, is that they're still accomplishing the the goal of catching and storing energy by catching any nutrient runoff that it can, slowing the water down, sinking it down, and keeping that on my land. And so that that, that I guess I'll keep saying it over and over again. This is my point of the class too: is that these these techniques are just they're just the implementation of the principles and ethics and the principle and ethics once you can start to let those operate in the background of your mind that is where the magic starts to happen is like you'll come up with the most fantastic ideas that you never thought would occur to you um, because you're not necessarily trying to replicate somebody else's technique and here's a good example of that justin rhodes a lot of people might know justin rhodes he's got the he he popularized this idea of the chickshaw which is like a mobile chicken coop with a, a open bottom on wheels that you can drag around and you can move your egg layers by hand pretty easily. Well, I built one of these chickshaw things thinking that that was like the best chicken coop you could make. Uh -huh. And come to find out that that chick, chicken coop sucks for my property because it's too wide. All my all the rows and places where I want to be putting it, it doesn't fit. My property is hilly and bumpy. And even with the big bicycle wheels that I put on there, it's still a pain in the ass and too heavy to move around by hand. So I still got to drag it with my mower or my tractor. Um, and it's, and, and just the way that I interact with it, I, it's broken down uh, pretty fast. And so once again, you can think that there is the way, but there are only ways. And um, the principles should be guiding which way you choose to, to implement your design rather than the techniques that you think are the end all be all the best. Somebody's figured out the best way to do something. You can discover through permaculture principles and ethics another way to do something that is just as good or better for your own particular situation. Right. And since you mentioned the class, it's, we should probably get into what it is that you're hosting on uh, September 16th and 17th. You want to take us through that? Yeah, absolutely. So the goal that I, from the start after the Airbnb and everything got started was I knew that I was going to have to transition into something. And I had taken a permaculture design course one year after I bought the property. And I just had, it was a fantastic experience. And I was like, I have to figure out a way to start doing permaculture design courses here. And so the goal of the homestead now is to not only um, implement some of these permaculture ethics and principles, but also to teach them. And so the first iteration of that is what I'm calling the Applied Permaculture Course. And so on, on Saturday, September 16th, we're going to just do a Bitcoin meetup for anyone to come. If you don't have a seat at the class, you can come hang out at the Bitcoin meetup, uh, meet other people who are interested in permaculture and Bitcoin. And then Sunday, September 17th, is when we're going to do the, when I'm going to teach the Applied Permaculture class, um, which starts at 10 a.m. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through first all the ethics, the principles, the eight forms of capital, and how I think Bitcoin and permaculture intersect. We'll look at some slides and, and I'll show you examples from how the systems I've got now started. And then at, we'll eat lunch, which um, I haven't determined if we're gonna eat uh, sheep, uh, mutton, rabbit, or chicken. We've got those three options. I have to kind of taste them and uh. make sure and basically choose which I think is best, uh, as well as some, I've got some homemade ciders, some hard ciders, if you wanna have a hard cider with lunch and some veggies from the garden and th the lunch is going to be excellent basically is the point is that there, it's going to be some of the highest quality nutrient dense food you can get 
all grown and produced here at the homestead. After we eat lunch, then I'll take you on a walk around I'll, and we're going to go and look at all these systems as they are today. The food forest is six years old now. It's starting to produce fruit, tons of berries, tons of stuff. We're going to look at the cannabis garden, which I've integrated as a rabbit colony as well. We're going to look at our civil pasture rotational grazing sheep systems, our maple sugar bush, which also doubles as a horse track for our, our, our horses and a place for our rams to chill out in the summertime. You'll see over and over again examples of how I've utilized the permaculture principles and ethics and applied them to come up with my own techniques to meet my particular aptitudes and situation. And hopefully if you come and, and see all that, you'll leave with the inspiration, not necessarily to think that, oh, I have to copy what Rev Hoddle's doing, but more that I, I understand how I can now observe and interact, catch and store energy, how I can apply these things to my place, my situation, my apartment, my, my suburban condo, whatever it might be, and glean some of the benefits that permaculture has to offer. And where, where is this? It's, it, I, you said, I think in your note, you said Baroda, Michigan. Baroda, Michigan. It's about two hours uh, from Chicago. Okay. Southwest Michigan. It's about 10 miles from the border of Indiana, from the northern border of Indiana, and about 10 miles from the shore of Lake Michigan. So it's in the, the southwest corner of Michigan. And if you want more information on, on either the Bitcoin meetup or the class, you got to DM me on, on Noster. Um, I'm, I'm trying to be uh, very specific about not really marketing through Twitter or X or whatever it is. Um, trying to keep it all between the people who come to the local Bitcoin meetups and, and doing everything through Noster because I think it's important to participate in the systems that I think ethically are the best. Yeah, I, I agree. I haven't, I haven't been on Twitter in so long. I, I, it, it almost like it, it was almost like breaking an addiction. Um, and honestly, what's weird is that I don't feel strangely addicted to, to Noster, even though it's the only thing that I've been using and I, I use it often for a great many things when I'm like, I can just detach myself from it in a way that I was never able to do with Twitter. So I, I really loving it. And I'm glad that you and other people are starting, you know, like we've all started to go, you know what, we don't need any, any of this other stuff. We have everything that we need right here on Noster. So I am uh, hoping that we can get all of your tickets sold and that people can come and look at your property and see what you've done and see how this stuff works in the wild so that they have a better understanding of what permaculture actually is and the fact that they can literally go do this at their own home. I mean, you don't have to have 20 acres. You can do it. You can do some of these techniques in your backyard. So, uh, Rev, I really, I really appreciate you being here today. I am so sorry about the uh, it, the issues that we had with uh, Nostra in the first part, but I will get this edited um, and get this up sometime today. Thank you for being here. Make sure that you tell everybody how they can get a hold of you. Yeah, thank you. I, I really appreciate what you're doing, um, greasing the wheels of this circular economy here on on Nostra. Um, and if you want to find me. You got to, uh, I'm Rev Hodel, Rev dot Hodel uh, on Noster at, if you use the Nippo 5, it's at Vita is live. Uh, so Rev, Rev dot Hodel on Noster. And that actually ends up being right where the Zoom meeting cut off. 
Uh, if you don't have a, a subscription to Zoom, you only get 40 minutes at a shot. And since we were so damn close to the end, I figured we just go ahead and end it right there. And I fixed a whole bunch of stuff in the mix. You're going to hear a whole bunch of uh, reference, or you heard a whole bunch of references in the interview about maybe some weirdness going on with the sounds in uh, at Noster Nests. This is worth actually mentioning because Noster Nest is so new. Um, it sounded to me and all the other people that were in that nest that there were certain times that Rev Hoddle uh, audio just went kablooey. I mean, like staticky. It was hard to hear. It was just awful. And so that's one of the reasons why I had to do a fair amount of editing on this particular episode. However, in the editing, what I found out was that I was able to salvage almost, well, actually, I salvaged all of Rev Hoddle's uh, audio from the Noster Nest part, which was like basically the first half of the interview came from Noster Nest. The second half of the interview came from uh, Zoom. And it turns out that there, like when I was recording the Nest, none of that staticky thing came through. It was only inside of Noster as so like the intake of his audio was fine. It was as it was being output to all the listeners and myself that it started cracking up. But as I was listening to the recording, the the parts that I just knew were going to be unusable are 100% usable. So understand that Noster Nest is a new, it, it's still new and there's bugs to be worked out. And it's, it's, unless we experiment using it like the way that I was using it today to record a podcast, we won't be able to determine exactly what's going on. So if anybody out there is, you know, knows the guys that are doing Noster Nest, please DM me their, um, uh, the guys that made Noster Nest. I cannot remember who it is. So please, if you know, DM me their InPub so that I can get in contact with them and tell them about this particular experience because they may want to know. Now, uh, with that said, I'm going to go ahead and cut it here. I do hope you enjoyed it. If you want to support the show, Podcasting 2.0 is the way to go. You can send me boostograms. You can stream me Satoshis. And ask me questions or ask me to see if you want to come on the show. If you've got something that you really want to talk about, if you've got an event, if you've got you know, something going on. I, I, you know, if you, if you know how to do something and you think other people might want to know how to do it, well, hit me up on Noster. Just throw me a DM and we'll see about it. You know, I don't mind doing interviews. I'm not the best at it, but I don't suck at it either. And with all that said, I'll see you on the other side. Have a good weekend. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.